Oh my goodness, y'all aren't ready for that. You don't understand who that was, do you? Do you all know who that was? Oh my goodness, that was Prince with Controversy. What a great song. That was like old school Prince. Yeah, Prince running around in his little leotard or whatever he, <laughs> whatever he was wearing. I mean, look, weird little dude, but man, what a gifted artist. My goodness, and what a great song. I mean, that was Controversy. All right, we are not focusing on Prince in this episode. <laughs> uh, although, again, now I'm captivated by this song. My goodness, what a great song. Anyway, we are covering something that is very controversial. Ooh, so get ready. Oh, I don't want to irritate anybody in this episode, but we got to stick to the facts, okay? Well, the facts here are pretty clear. So we're going to talk about the second stage of labor. How long is too long? Does the time limit only reflect active pushing or total time in the second stage? I'm sure you've heard this discussion, right? Oh, oh, she, she's fine. She's been complete for about three hours, but, but we haven't started pushing yet. So she's not on the clock. Huh? Is that real? Is that a thing? Oh, it's a thing. I mean, I've seen and I've peer-reviewed some second stage of labors that are six to eight hours. Definitely not endorsing that. So in this episode, we're going to follow the controversy regarding the length of the second stage. Yeah, we have guidelines. We know the hours. We know what they should be. But is that only for active or for total length? We're going to make it clear in this episode. Controversy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Wow. One of the things about practicing for, what has it been, 23 years now is you kind of see all the progression. Now, in general, medicine moves forward unidirectionally. We progress, we advance, we move up. Sometimes we get stuck in circles and sometimes we go back to the, be- back to the beginning, right? So it springs forward and then boom, bounces back. Um, like steroids, let's take into account perinatal steroids. I mean, I remember doing weekly steroids because that's what the original data said uh, by Liggins and Howie. I mean, it was every seven days we gave steroids. We had a whole spreadsheet. Nope. Uh, on the eighth day, boom, you, you hit them again. Well, that's not coming back. But but while steroids is still a big part of, of prenatal uh, care for those at threatened preterm labor, uh, it, it's changed frequently. Remember, we now go all the way down to 22 weeks, and then we started doing the late preterm thing between 34 and 36 and 6. Now that's kind of being pulled back like, ooh, maybe we don't want to do that. Uh, Or if we're going to do that, make sure that we stick to the original criteria of the ALPS trial and make sure they really are going to deliver early because there's data that if you give steroids in the late preterm interval and then they deliver at term, uh, that could potentially imprint them with some epigenetic changes for altered neurodevelopmental outcomes at five years. I've covered this multiple times in past episodes. We're not talking about steroids, but it makes the point that some arguments, some concepts in medicine, specifically in obstetrics, while they are on the track moving forward, right? We're driving the car, going down progress lane, um, but some things are still kind of circular. Well, the second stage of labor it's kind of circular. Now, 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 hold on for a minute. I know what you're saying. Um, bruh, 
it's not circular. We, we know the guidelines. I mean, it's 2014, safe prevention of the primary C-section. Well, that, that's been around for a long time. And, and the hour cutoffs are there. Absolutely. We, we, we have known that for a long time. And the hour cutoffs are there. But if you really read the wording, there's a lot still left for interpretation. Now, remember, we're talking about the original publication from uh, ACOG, which was March 2014, the obstetric care consensus number one. How about that? The first obstetric care consensus bulletin or, or guidance um, from the college that reworded the labor rules, right? Redefined them. So Friedman was out. Uh, active labor was now six centimeters, not four centimeters. We get that. All right. Well, in that, uh, in the discussion on second stage of labor, there's some phrases in there that kind of threw people for a loop. And now in October 2023, it's still throwing people for a loop. All right. So uh, I'm going to go over this again. The ACOG obstetric care consensus number one from 2014. Here's the wording that kind of throws people off. So right at the beginning, let's clarify the thing that's not confusing, okay? The definition of the second stage of labor is, is not in question, right? The second stage of labor is 10 centimeters until birth of the child. That's the definition of second stage, period. But here's the controversy, all right? What defines a prolonged second stage of labor? Now, before you go, oh, the new guidelines say it's three hours in the NOLIP without an epidural, extending possibly to four hours, and two hours in a MOLTIP without an epidural, extending maybe to three hours with an epidural. We know that. No, no, no. That's one interpretation of it. Now, that is the usual and customary, but here's, again, where the controversy lies, all right? So the controversy is not in the definition of a second stage of labor. That's 10 centimeters until birth of the kid, okay? We get that. Third stage of labor is the placenta, all right? The controversy is what is a prolonged second stage. And those hours that we mentioned, is that total duration of the second stage, like 10 centimeters until birth, or is it only with active pushing? Because some studies historically have divided the second stage of labor into passive second stage or passive descent, uh, and then active pushing. Remember, another name for passive descent is laboring down. All right. We're going to get into all of this, including the the, the 2018 uh, study that, you know, kind of flipped the switch on on delayed pushing uh, or laboring down. And, and, and I am going to give you I'm not going to leave you with the controversy at the end. I am going to give you what what seems to be the evidence based the weight of the deity weight weight of the deity do you hear that oh God. the weight of the deity let's make that a bumper sticker i'm going to give you the weight of the day the weight of the deity the weight of the data my goodness i'm going to tell you what the weight of the data says about this right because there is an answer and if you haven't guessed it by now no i am not in favor of of six hour or eight hour second stages of labor because nothing good will happen from that. Oh, see, I already, I already probably pissed off somebody, but I, I'm going to follow the rules here, right? Follow the data, follow the data. And this isn't even my opinion. I'm going to give you something from, uh, from people that I admire so much uh, out of my old institution and, and one who's now no, no longer with us, um, Dr. Levino, who passed away just a couple of years ago. I mean, these are pioneers 
uh, the, the dinosaurs, and I mean that in a good way, right? The dinosaurs of obstetrics. And I'm going to give you his stance about you, us messing around with the rules of the second stage of labor, okay? Because he published a, a current commentary in 28 and 2016 that uh, really shook things up in response to these new labor rules, all right? All right, so so back to our discussion. No one is questioning the definition of second stage, 10 centimeters until birth. Is the definition of prolonged? Is that total second stage or is it only pushing? So in obstetric care consensus number one, it's very clear. But look at look how they cover both bases, okay? ACOG's covering both sides of the fence here. So ACOG states, quote, in one retrospective study of over 5,000 multiparous women, when the duration of second stage of labor exceeded three hours, the risk of a five-minute APGAR score less than seven, admission to NICU, and a composite of neonatal morbidity were all significantly increased. Okay, we get that. That seems like it's saying prolonged, not good. ACOG continues to say, quote, a longer duration of second stage of labor is associated with adverse maternal outcomes, like a higher rate of puberal infection third-degree and fourth-degree perineal lacerations, and postpartum hemorrhage. Moreover, for each hour of the second stage, the chance for spontaneous vaginal delivery progressively decreases. End quote. All right. Once again, we'll all get it. Okay. Prolonged second stage with with hours uh, cutoffs. Uh, we get that. that. That sounds to be not good. Fine. But here's how ACOG straddles both sides of the fence because it does throw this line over to the other side of the fence, all right? Here's what they state, quote, a specific absolute maximum length of time spent in the second stage of labor beyond which all women should undergo operative delivery has not been identified, end quote. Y'all get that? That's a heavy statement. So let's restate that again. A specific absolute maximum length of time spent in the second stage of labor beyond which all women should undergo operative delivery has not been identified. I'm reading that exactly as it states, as it's written uh, in the ACOG obstetric care consensus number one. And that's what some patients have taken to, to say, hey, I'm going to leave that patient at second stage as long as there's no lates on there or severe variables. She's going to sit there until I see baby hair. Uh, I'm telling you, I've heard it. And so this leads to six, seven, eight hours of second stage. Um, so is that fair? And then when they point to this, it says right here, I read that as no absolute maximum length of time. Yes, but you also have to remember this was 2014. Now in October of 2023, now almost 10 years later, we, we see this information here that has changed, right? So now we know a lot more and there's a lot more information here. So a couple of questions right off the bat. Number one, does ACOG recognize a difference between active versus passive second stage? The answer is absolutely yes. Because if you take a look, once again, at the definition of a prolonged second stage of labor, the college is very clear. It states, quote, second stage of labor can be continued with maternal and fetal conditions permitting at least two hours of pushing in multi-pairs women and at least three hours of pushing in nulle paris women, and that can be allowed, longer durations may be appropriate on an individualized basis. In other words, with use of an epidural, um, you can allow it an additional hour, right? But did you catch those words there? At least two hours of pushing in multi-paris women and three hours of pushing in nulle paris women. They put in that word pushing. 
So when you add these two issues, hey, no maximum length of time in the second stage, and then the definition of, from, the, from the college right here, I'm looking at it, it states two hours of pushing in a multip and then three hours of pushing in a, in a nulliparous patient, it seems pretty clear. It has to do with pushing. So then the question is, which is better? What does ACOG state to do? Should it do delayed or you know laboring down? or active pushing, and even that has changed. I'm going to get into that in just a minute, all right? Because, again, one of the circular things about obstetrics is, uh, I mean, at one point, ACOG was like, hey, we're going to do this, and then shortly thereafter, like a year later, it changed <laughs> It changed course. Because why? Because medicine is always moving fast. But, but I wanted you to get this controversy and what has allowed some practitioners to interpret this literally verbatim, which is there's there's no maximum time of the second stage. So I'm going to keep going as long as maternal and fetal status permit. Uh, and it's written here that it should be pushing. Okay, I get that. Remember, 2014 and, and now in, in 2023, we have new data. Actually, this changed in 2018, right? No, there's not been a new obstetric care consensus about this, but new data that ACOG recognized stamped and said, yes, we're going to do this. All right. So I told you a little bit earlier in the intro, I'm not going to leave you hanging with the controversy. I'm going to tell you what the data seems to show, knowing, of course, that there's always caveats, guys, right? Please don't send me a Facebook message. What about this condition? There are caveats to everything. There's a caveat to a caveat. There's a caveat to that caveat because life is tricky. But in general, if somebody asks you, um, how long should the second stage of labor be? Your answer is, well, First of all, we don't have a maximum amount of time, but there's good data since that statement first came out in 2014 that probably it's X and Y. And I'm going to explain what that X and Y is in just a minute. I'm going to get into the active and the passive management of second stage of labor, um, including new data that came out uh, this year, 2023. But let's go back again to the obstetric care consensus number one that confused everybody. All right. Now, on the one hand, it didn't confuse anybody about the new labor definitions, like active labor really should be six centimeters, four centimeters was just way too tight, way too conservative, back from the old Friedman curve. Um, so, so while, I mean, and I love that consensus, uh, bulletin, that consensus statement, number one, I mean, just so much good data in there. Right. But, but that, that, that one little sentence regarding second stage, uh, when, when people read that and read it carefully, they're like, well, so is there a prolonged second stage or, or not? And it, it sounds like it's only for, for pushing. Right. And, and that has carried on despite the fact that from 2014 to 2013, there's been new data that has, that has peppered this landscape. Right. So but let's go back in history. 2014, that comes out. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, we're not doing Friedman curve anymore. The world is ending. Uh, right. The sky is falling and it's chaos. And, uh, you know, the hills are, are on fire. And I'm like, chill, chill out. <laughs> that patient population from the Freeman curve uh, is totally different to the modern U.S. population and the population in general worldwide. It's just different. I mean, anesthesia is different. BMIs are different. Nutrition is different and not in a good way. So, I mean, to go from using a paper in 1955 that was still being applied in, in 2012 uh, to 2014, really, I mean, my goodness, it is time to upgrade it. So, so that's fine. 
But but this issue on second stage ruffled feathers, all right? So remember, we're talking about that was March uh, 2014, literally almost to the date in April 2016. So about just exactly two years later, out of the Gray Journal, uh, the, the pioneers of obstetrics, my old staff, uh, Dr. Lavino, uh, Dr. Nelson, Dr. McIntyre, they wrote this uh, clinical opinion that... Um, well, definitely was was pretty strongly worded. It, it, this was this was the publication that was a strongly worded email. Uh, I'm going to send you a strongly worded email, and boy, they did. Uh, and and they, were, they did not mince words here. All right, and, and so I remember when this came out um, because the the stance was, "Hey, this is not safe. We're trying to appease a C-section number, and we're we're caving to number benchmarks rather than a patient quality care." I'm serious. That's I mean, that's what it said. Uh, the title of this is pretty similar to our uh, title of this episode, Second Stage Labor, How Long is Too Long? And it's under clinical opinions, again, from 2016. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that kind of goes into the, the uh, justification and the rationale why Dr. Levino said, hey, messing with the rules of second stage, the, the traditional labor uh, time spans is a risky business. Let's not do that. And the short of it is, let me just read you, and there's a lot of data in there, but this is, this is how strong this is stated, okay? Quote, U.S. obstetrics is indeed at a crossroads vis-a-vis second stage of labor. We are of the view that when infant safety is at stake, the evidence should be robust before a new road is taken. The evidence for safety is not at all robust. Indeed, we are of the view that the evidence is actually the exact opposite, that second stage of labor greater than three hours is unsafe for the unborn infant, end quote. Well, I told you that was a strongly worded email. I mean, is there anybody, anybody's guess, was there any bit confusion as to what Levino's stance was here? I mean, and that's the end, right? So you can just, that, that is, you can just imagine the crescendo coming up to this climax statement of, uh-uh, oh no, you didn't. I mean, <laughs> there you go. You did what? You messed with the rules of labor of the second stage and we're okay messing with the first stage of labor. I mean, giving them more time is okay. Second stage of labor when you're about to cross that finish line, don't move that finish line away from the runner. That's exactly what basically they said in Chapa interpretation style. All right. And again, we'll post this, uh, the link uh, on the reference page, but it's on PubMed. Um, it's just a fantastic rebuttal to the obstetric care consensus number one. So I'm very torn because I'm very ACOG friendly. Uh, I'm very thankful for my position with the college. And at the same time, Dr. Lavino is my faculty, author of Williams Obstetrics, a, a pioneer and a dinosaur in the, in, in, the, in the world of obstetrics. God rest his soul. So, yeah. So you talk about controversy, even within the house, it's okay to disagree. Let's just disagree amicably. Boy, Dr. Lavino, what what a just a personality. If you all never met, had met um, Dr. Kenneth Lavino, uh, I was so scared of this man. I mean, I just he was just just a presence. Do you all know what I'm talking about? About a presence like old school medicine. I mean, he was just a big stately man. I had posted a picture recently 
uh, with Dr. Cunningham, Dr. Lavino, and, and, and somebody from medical staff on the Facebook page. And that picture really doesn't do either of them justice because these are tall men. I mean, towering, literally figures, towering in terms of their reputation. And just they were just bigger than life. I mean, his voice, I still remember Lavino's voice would, you could hear him talking on the hallway and then people would poop their pants. Uh, it's amazing. It was like a vagal reflex. Like, oh, Lavino's coming. It's like, oh my gosh, uh, I'll be back and run into the restroom real quick. <laughs> and it was a healthy fear, right? It was that reverent fear. Um, uh, anyway, just my goodness. I, that's what I, honestly, guys, look, I'm, I, I want to leave a legacy to my family. I want to, I want to be a good father. I know I've got room to grow there because I'm, you know, no one's perfect. Um, I want to leave a legacy to them. I want to leave a legacy to to my field of medicine. At least Chapa, look, man, he's had issues. He wasn't perfect, man. He tried, tried to do something. That that's that's what I think of when I think of Lavino and and Jack Pritchard, uh, Doctor Santos. All of these these were dinosaurs at Parkland. God bless them. Okay, so let's get back on track of how medicine self-corrects itself. And that's okay. It's all right. I mean, I've, I've said something that I have to go back and go, hey, hey guys, uh, I, I misspoke or I meant X, Y, or and Z because it, it, you do what you can, right? I mean, things change. Uh, oh, I remember when I did an interview about Zika. Okay, remember when Zika was a thing? Um, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, but again, once again, you know, the zombies are coming, the apocalypse is here. Zika was real. I mean, it was scary, but. We got over that. It's like we got over COVID or getting over COVID. Um, but I went out and, and did a, an interview uh, on media on about about Zika. And I'm like, no, this doesn't seem to you know be passed uh, you know through relations or anything. This is a, an arborvirus. It's it's insect born. And then we figured out, oh wow, wacky enough. I mean, if the partner, if the man actually has Zika, it can actually get into a germline and and affect his sperm, and there could be some issues there. So. Yeah, I guess Zika actually had some sexual transmission. Who would have known that? Uh, yeah, and that was like, we, we figured that out like two weeks after I'd gone on uh, on a television program and, and said, no, it doesn't matter. Oh, my God. But that's why I always preface it with, as far as we know right now, do you all notice in the episodes I always say, as of October 2023, because, hey, man, stuff changes. So I'm letting you know where I'm recording it, what the timestamp is, um, so that things can adjust later. All right, let's go back to 2017. In 2017, there was ACOG's uh, Committee Opinion 766 that was later replaced in 2019. So 2017, they released this Committee Opinion, which was approaches to limit intervention during labor and birth. And then two years later in 2019, it got replaced and wordings changed. Okay, well, what caused it? What happened in the middle of 2017 and 2019? The answer, 2018, <laughs> because in 2018, a publication came out that made ACOG uh, respond to this committee opinion, take it out of circulation, and then reword it. Hey, see, that, that's what I love about ACOG is they're responsive to the data. So this committee opinion, the original in 2017 said, hey, delayed pushing seems to be legit um, because, you know, we don't want to give uh, the baby extra stress. We don't want to fatigue the mom. So, you know, laboring down is all right. We can do that. It's, it's okay. Let's do that for a while. Um, and then when she feels the the urge to push called active second stage, then, then you can do that. Um, but in 2018, a study came out that said, ooh, delayed pushing, probably not good, increases the rate of postpartum uh, infection of PPH, and it really doesn't increase the chance of vaginal birth. Now, yes, that was only in nulla 
Paris patients who had an epidural, but by extrapolation, ACOG said, ooh, delayed pushing, um, it just doesn't seem to work well. So at 10 centimeters, when you find the patients at 10 centimeters, go ahead and begin active pushing. So that changed that committee opinion. Again, committee opinion number 766, now from February 2019, one year after that study came out, changed it that delayed pushing or passive phase of labor is no longer endorsed. Remember, there's always a caveat. It's always part of delayed uh, uh, or shared decision-making, um, and especially if the patient can't feel anything. I mean, you know, we always turn down the epidural, right, so she can get some urge to push, even though that is limited data also. Um, but the point is, is that ACOG, as of 2018 to 2019, with this new committee opinion, really does not favor a passive second stage of labor. Are y'all getting this, all right? So if the argument was, ah, there's no maximum amount of time for the second stage, and the time limit specifically say pushing, so then it doesn't matter how long the the passive phase uh, of second stage is. We're just going to let her sit there until she feels that urge and then put her on the clock. But in 2018 to 2019, the college said, let's not do that. Delayed pushing seems to be linked to adverse outcomes and doesn't really help the chance of vaginal success. Do y'all get that? So I'm already getting to, the, to, to my, you know, my, my punchline here, even though we still have more things to cover. And I told you I was going to give you the, the data-driven answer here of, uh, is that, does the college favor a passive or active phase of the second stage? And the answer is the active phase. It no longer endorses delayed pushing, although the original study was only in Nola Paris patients. That 2018 publication was an RCT that came out of JAMA Network led by Atlantida. And the first listed author was Allison Cahill. And the title is Effective Immediate Versus Delayed Pushing on Rates of Spontaneous Vaginal Delivery Among Nola Paris Women Receiving Neuraxial Analgesia. Now, Yes, it was based on nulliparous women, but again, the the whole idea here is that delayed pushing, which prolonged the second stage of labor, um, what was linked to these adverse issues. So ACOG, again, yes, it does recognize the difference between passive and active, but it favors active pushing once the patient hits or is it known to have 10 centimeters dilation. Out of that publication, the big take-home message was, quote, Delayed pushing has not been shown to significantly improve the likelihood of vaginal birth, and risks of delayed pushing include infection, hemorrhage, and neonatal acidemia, end quote. So, you see, now it's less controversial. Do you see that? So this whole thing of uh, the whole original controversy of, well, is that active or is that passive pushing? Does it include those who are just sitting there or those who are pushing their brains out? And the answer is, well, thankfully, in 2018, out of JAMA, we got that answer because it seems to be that once the patient is diagnosed at 10 centimeters, then start pushing. Now, I know and you know and I know that that's not always the case. I mean, if she's just, if she's sleeping, she's totally comfortable, we're not going to go, okay, go, 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 go. Um, and so it, it it is this compromise, right? The shared decision-making. But I don't let them sit there for hours and I give them that time limit. So just to be clear, now that we have those those time limits from 2014, right? Three hours in a NOLIP, at least two hours in a MOLTIP, extended an additional hour with labor epidural analgesia. I tell the patient, hey, you're 10 centimeters. Uh, as 
as of right now that we found you, although you could have been 10 centimeters like 30 minutes ago, which I'm going to get into in just a minute. And and we have, if, if right now it is 7 a.m., I'm giving you three hours because you are a G1, that's called a nulliparous patient, with no epidural. Now, what you want to do in those three hours is totally up to you. You can wait for 30 minutes. I'm going to let you, I can let you wait for an hour, but we cannot exceed the, the rules of the game, which is for you, three hours, right? If you had an epidural, four hours, even though the chance that that extra hour is going to work uh, is, is about 25%, right? So just for you know, and it's in that original obstetric care consensus, the, the, the numbers that you quote to the patient, and I document, right? Document, 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 is that if we get to that three-hour mark in a nulliparous patient and she has an epidural, the chance of her having a vaginal delivering that additional hour is one in uh, four. It's 25% right? If she's a multip and she gets to the two-hour mark and she has an epidural, the chance of her having a successful vaginal delivery in the additional hour is one in three, 33%. Those aren't great numbers, guys. And I document all that. Like, where'd you get those numbers? One in four, one in three. Uh, the obstetric care consensus, number one, it's in there. So th- th- you don't have to guess and you don't have to make up numbers. And I tell the patients all this, hey, here's what the numbers look like. You got this amount of time. Um, because uh, by that amount of time, boy, you're way off the average because the average times for second stage of labors in both primates and multips are significantly less than that. So you're already off the curb, right? Now, it doesn't mean that everybody goes for a section, but remember what it says, operative delivery of some kind. It could be operative vaginal delivery if the baby's low enough and you feel comfortable with that, or operative abdominal delivery if the baby hasn't descended at all, right? Now, in that intervening time, whether it's two hours or three hours, there's things that you can do. I mean, you can you potentially have position changes. You can see if there's malrotation, try to uh, rotate the baby's head, um, ask the patient how she would like to push. That's all for, for patient comfort. Uh, and, and and adaptability, but we do stick with the rules, all right? So you see how this original controversy that we started with, well, what is it? Is it active or is it passive? Since that publication from JAMA, it's less controversial because the college says, really, we favor active pushing as opposed to passive. So the passive phase, which is what extended the, the length of time in the second stage of labor, uh, really is not a good idea uh, to begin with, all right? Now, let me get into this data here that because there is evidence that a delayed passive phase of labor uh, is not good and just validating what we've just already stated. But that data just came out 2023 this year. So let's cover that next. My goodness, you see how maintenance of certification, this article was not on the MOC, by the way. I'm just making a point here. Maintenance of certification, that makes you keep reading, that makes you stay engaged in the literature. See, oh, that's a good idea. I mean, it just, and I know there's been all these, you know, uh, controversies regarding that as well. Oh, MOC doesn't make you a better doctor. Um, No, but at least it makes you a more informed doctor. Because being a good doctor is not just what you know, it's how you communicate to your patients, it's how you communicate to your peers, it's how you treat your staff, it's how you treat your patients, it's your uh, overall, um, um, your EQ, uh, it's your technical skills, it's not just what you know, and that's been you know a lot of the controversy, and I've posted some of that on our Facebook page. But if you're not aware that there's controversy regarding the MOC, well, there is, and it's across disciplines. Like, God, I hate that they make us read articles. Really? Why? I mean, you should be doing this by yourself anyway, and you get credit, and you get 
uh, hours for your CME, why not? Um, I am definitely in the camp, sorry, of continue MOC. I, I think you need to keep reading. You need to stay informed because there's some whack stuff out there, man. And at least knowing the data uh, keeps you accountable. All right, everybody, hang in there because we're almost at the end. We're now going to cover data from this year, from January, the start of the year, 2023, out of the online journal Plus One. All right. The title of this publication is Mode of Delivery and Birth Outcomes in Relation to the Duration of the Passive Second Stage of Labor, a Retrospective Cohort Study of Nulliparous Women. So it's exactly what we're talking about. Now, if you're thinking, all right, you already, you already told us, dude, I get it. Passive labor is, is not good in second stage. No, no, no. But, but here's why. Here's the additional evidence, okay, that having a patient just sit there until you see hair and then you start the clock at active pushing probably is not the best, okay? Yes, this was retrospective. I get that. It's not an RCT and it's not prospective. But but the amount of patients that were looked at were, were pretty decent. I mean, it was um, 1,131. It was two delivery units in Sweden. By the way, Sweden still likes passive descent, right? That's their mojo. They kind of like that. Um, of course, some do uh, active pushing right at the start. But in general, um, it does favor this delayed pushing. So the passive stage of labor is as you would think it was. I mean, it was defined as complete dilation of the cervix until the start of active pushing, duh, otherwise known as delayed pushing, okay? And they took a look at the data to see for those who had delayed pushing, uh, first of all, what was the time limit of that and was it linked to any adverse issues? These patients were divided into three groups. Those that had zero to less than two hours of passive second stage, two hours to less than four hours, or greater than four hours. Remember, this is all passive stage, right? So zero to two, two to less than four, and then greater than four hours. And then they took a look to see what were the outcomes based on those time divisions. The authors found that a longer duration of the passive second stage of labor was associated with an increased risk of operative delivery. They also found that the risk of a five-minute APGAR score less than seven was increased in the two to four-hour group, and the risk of admission to NICU was also increased in that two to four-hour group, as well as the greater than four-hour group. So this led the authors to conclude, quote, the passive second stage of labor does not contain the same physiological processes as the active phase, but does, for unclear reasons, generate an increased risk of adverse neonatal outcomes when it is prolonged, end quote. So it seems to be based on other publications that not only is the total length of second stage of labor an independent risk factor, but if you add active pushing on top of that, so those two things together uh, make it even worse, all right? So a long second stage of labor, even passive phase is not good. But if you include active labor on top of that, that seems to, to double the blow. That was actually published out of Sweden in a separate Swedish study that actually showed that exact relationship, okay? A long passive second stage of labor combined with an active second stage of greater than 45 minutes led to an increased rate of adverse neonatal outcomes. That was published in the Journal of Perinatology in 2017. The first author on that was Sandstrom. 
Wait, wait, wait. Before we get to the end, I, I do have to say the obvious here. Haven't you ever thought about this whole cutoff of 10 centimeters dilation? Like something like magical happens, like click, click, like honestly, their little timer starts and they got to be delivered at this time. But that's 10 centimeters when you found it. Doesn't mean that that's exactly when she t- turned 10 centimeters, right? Like, bing, like she has a little alarm that goes off. Hey, I'm 10 centimeters now. And, and this is one of the the hidden dilemmas here of labor care, right? We don't know how long she's been sitting there at 10 centimeters. I mean, unless you've checked her an hour before and she was nine, she definitely had a rim again. You checked her in an hour for some other reason, maybe urge to push. And oh, now now she's 10, that you can pretty much narrow that down. But 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 knowing when she exactly turned, you know, 10 centimeters, when the second stage actually started, um, we don't know that. This was highlighted in a commentary in a published book, the title of which is Childbirth Clinical Assessment Methods and Management. And there's a chapter in there uh, that's uh, titled Second Stage of Labor in Obese Patients Calling for a New Definition. Okay, uh, this actually came out just uh, oddly enough, August 2023. That's when it was published. Uh, and it is, uh, there's a version on that online. Again, childbirth clinical assessment methods and management. And I'll post the link to this uh, in our reference page. I don't have any financial ties to this, but but I do like what they stated here. Well, first, let me give you the gist of this because it's talking about obese patients. Uh, the, the argument that they're saying is, look, maybe if there's one time to allow for a prolonged second stage of labor, maybe it's in obese patients because the risk of surgery there is just so much greater anyway with infection, wound complication, and VTE that if we just maybe let them sit a little bit longer, that maybe they'll deliver, right? That's the gist of it, even though we, we don't have a lot of data for that. But But they have this little statement in here about calling a patient second stage that I have to include into this because... We, we get so tied up with definitions and times. We don't know when she turned 10 centimeters. Again, unless you just recently checked her and she wasn't. And then you check her again and she is. Um, I don't know. Maybe she was 10 centimeters. Maybe she's been sitting there already for an hour. Um, and she doesn't feel any pressure because she has an epidural. Does that make sense? She's 10 centimeters when you find out she's 10 centimeters by your exam. But she may have been 10 centimeters before that. So as these authors state in this book, quote, defining the start of the second stage of labor based on a cervix reading is prone to inaccuracies due to the inherent variability and frequency of pelvic examinations during labor. It is entirely possible that many patients are completely dilated well before the examinator detects it, end quote. Of course, and that's one of the initial controversies here about letting patients continue to sit in a passive phase because who knows how long they've been there unless you've checked them shortly previous and know that they made cervical change within the 30 minutes or the hour or whatever. Does that make sense? Anyway, I just found that, that, I found that kind of interesting out of the book Childbirth Clinical Assessment Methods and Management. All right, podcast family. So as we get ready to close this up, remember in 2014, I'm looking at it right now, second stage of labor. It states, quote, before diagnosing the rest of labor in the second stage, if the maternal and fetal conditions permit, allow at least two hours of pushing in multi-pairs women and at least three hours of pushing in nulliparous women, recognizing that longer durations may be appropriate on an individualized basis, like with the use of an epidural analgesic agent, end quote. All right. So that was 2014. And it's very clear that applied to 
active phases of labor. It had it didn't say anything about passive. Notice it just was like, hey, oh, nothing to see here, folks. We're not addressing that. That's nothing to see here. This is active phase. But then fast forward again to 2018, where ACOG recognized that new data, causing them to change their stance in 2019, now favoring absence of delayed pushing. So now that we've taken away basically the delayed pushing part, it defaults that one a pa- once a patient is 10 centimeters and we default to immediate pushing, those time limits are legit. All right. Now, uh, I know that there's caveats for everything, as we've already stated, and I'm sure that there's perfectly acceptable times when going beyond those seems to be reasonable, especially if there's continued progress, baby looks great, mom's a febrile. However, that should not be the norm. Those should be the exception and on an individualized shared decision-making basis. And, you know, I can't leave that issue about Prince without doing 1999. Oh, boy. Let me give you a little transparency as we wrap this up. Look, I won't tell you how old I was when this came out. But I'll tell you that I was in peak adolescence. <laughs> and I remember Lisa and Wendy, when I saw them in this video, 1999, playing that little synthesizer, I was like, oh my gosh, it's wow. So that's what women look like, huh? And yeah, forever changed my adolescence. <laughs> All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And <laughs> we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.